the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Bud Elliott. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson coming to you live at YouTube.com slash Cover 3 and all across the 24-7 Sports Facebook network. Thanks for hanging out. Smash the subscribe and high five the like. And come and join us in the chat. Subscribers hanging out already. The conversation is going here on this Monday. We are going to be taking a look back at the NFL draft combine uh, all throughout the weekend in Indianapolis. All of our favorite players uh, that we have spent the last couple of years covering, uh, trying to do the best for themselves with the NFL draft and NFL fans all looking on. Of course, we're going to be talking about the quarterbacks. We're going to talk about some surprising test results. And as always throughout this NFL draft process, we here at the Cover 3 Podcast are going to get it straight for you to let you know where the NFL draft uh, talkers might be missing things uh, just slightly one way or the other. So a lot of NFL draft uh, combined conversation coming up in a little bit. In fact, uh, Don asks, is Bub in a bunker? No, he's actually in the 24-7 sports offices in Nashville. And so let's just go ahead and get this started with a little icebreaker from the chat. Robert asks, if each host had to run a 40 right now, and I would say that like, Bud, you would be able to change into you know some some good running clothes. You know, Tom and I were stay ready all stars. If we yeah. had to run a forty right now, what would your time be? Actually, I'm, I'm wearing like UGG slippers. Can I at least put on gym shoes? You can put yes. You you can put on the your finest uh, running sneaks. Uh, four or five flat, no doubt. I mean, that's that's why he was a, a selection in the Major League Baseball draft. The kind of athleticism oh, sure. you can't replicate. Bud, what do you think? I think like the line for most of us, unless you are, are still like playing competitive sports, and we're we're all pretty close to forty, or we are forty, right? I'm twenty five. <laughs> okay, all right. So Tom Tom is is a really uh, curious looking twenty five, but twenty five nonetheless. I, I will say, soul. <laughs> like I, I was at some camps and combines over the weekend, and if you want just some comparison stuff, there are kids at some of these camps and combines who weigh like close to 400 pounds and will not be going to play college football because they are not athletic. And those guys, like the dudes who you're like, oh my gosh, that dude is like scarily obese. They run over a seven, okay? So I don't think anybody on the show would crack like five and a quarter and five and a half I think would still be really hard. But there is a line between like five and a half and six and a half where if you have some ability to run, as long as you don't pull a hamstring, you're going to break six and a half seconds. Like the only guys I see who run over seven are the dudes who are like, just, you know, they're like they, they're so big. They, they walk funny essentially. In all seriousness, if I broke six seconds, I would probably just retire right then yeah. and there. Be like, <laughs> I've never running any amount of distance ever again. I ran under six in the 40, right? At, at this point, I would be thrilled. No, I'm the prospect who, who this is a poor thing for me. Just, I know my strengths and weaknesses. I think I would be okay in the cone drill. And I think if you put me out at like the 100 or any kind of distance running, I can put up a respectable score. Gentlemen, I'm afraid the 40 is my dead zone. I might be seven. 
I really might be seven no. seconds. Like, no, I, seven I, seconds I, is a very long time. So the way that it was once described by Patrick Southern, who used to be on the West Virginia beat as the final media shuttle was leaving the Orange Bowl parking lot at 3 a.m. And I was faced with the prospect of being left alone in the Orange Bowl parking lot at 3 a.m. in 2011. He said, your starting speed wasn't great, but once you finally did hit top speed, it was kind of pretty impressive. And that was the most terrified and the fastest I've ever run. And it took me at least 35 yards before I could really get up to a top speed. So I know that the 40 is not my strength. Chip just lulling the defensive back to sleep before he bursts past it. <laughs> I mean, I, again, I could do the cone drill. I got to, like when I'm playing basketball, I can be a pretty good defender. But 40 yard dash, uh, not my uh, not my strong suit. We'll get to uh, much more from the NFL draft about the players that are going to be in the NFL coming up in a little bit. First, some big news from Friday uh, that really started to set in motion more of the conversation around conference realignment as CBS Sports' Dennis Dodd and others began to report that the Big 12 has been in contact with the four corner schools, as it has become commonly referred to. That would be Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, and Utah. Now, Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark has not been shy about describing his league's possession position as be, wanting to be aggressive in terms of exploring into Freudian slip. <laughs> the, the Pacific time zone. And, uh, and and now, as the Pac-12 continues to have its media rights negotiations continue, we are now in month nine of the Pac-12 uh, talking to potential partners wow. without a deal. Has it really been that long? Since the window opened, wow. we are coming up on almost a year. Wow. So, with the latest a little rumbling on realignment, and it is a, a through line all through the offseason – what is the expectation from uh, from from this latest round of reports? I mean, I, I don't think the Big 12 communicating with those four schools is breaking news. I feel like that's kind of just been going on for a while. I think we're kind of in the same situation we've probably been in the entire time. Until we know what the Pac-12 TV deal is and it's brought to the table and the schools know, we don't know what any of the schools are going to do. Like, it's pro my plain guess is that the Big 12 has presented an offer to Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, Utah. And they're like, okay. And now they're going to see what the Pac 12 comes back with. And whatever the better offer is for each of them, that's what they're going to end up doing. I, I kind of feel like this just feels like a big PR campaign behind the scenes by the Big 12. Um, you know, they, we, we, we had Brett Yormack on, on, on the show, and, and he's clearly somebody who uh, is trying to be as active as possible. There's no real downside to having it be known that the Big 12 is open for business and that they are looking to expand west a little bit, right? Now, to me, I don't think there's any chance the Pac-12 schools leave for the Big 12 unless the Pac-12 TV deal completely flops. Now, maybe it's a shorter TV deal or a shorter TV slash streaming deal and we are back on this show in five or six years discussing it again. But to me, it feels like let's keep our name in the news as, as the Big 12. If the Pac-12 deal totally flops and the numbers come in 60% less than what the Big 12 jumped ahead of them in line and got, then maybe that's an emergency situation where you'd have to, you know, to go to the to the Big 12. But man, I really would be surprised there. Like those schools are pretty tied in with the state of California and, and with staying out west. Like Arizona State has a campus in California, right? Like they're, they're not just playing partners. They are also educational partners. They take that stuff kind of seriously. I, I'd be surprised. Arizona State doesn't take anything academic seriously. Come on, what are we talking about here? Um, Do you make anything of the timeline? The Athletic had a, a line in the report that stood out to me that said, if it's going to happen, it's likely to be this month or uh, in the next few weeks. That to me seems significant because... Now I can just actually put a little deadline. I can ramp up the urgency here in terms of how much I'm thinking about it and how much I'm preparing for the possible announcement because if that reported you know, timeline, not a deadline, but a timeline is to be believed, then it's, uh, it's poop or get off the pot time and we should find out soon. I thought that part of all of this reporting did seem significant to me. Yeah, 
I guess. I, I, I don't know. It's nine months they've been doing this TV deal trying to get one. Jesus. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe they're just kind of reaching the point where it's like the TV networks are maybe, maybe they're reaching their best and final. Like, listen, this is what we're willing to do. You want it or not? Because, I mean, we gave Larry Scott a whole lot of well-deserved grief for his tenure as the Pac-12 commissioner for some of the decisions he made, like, you know, paying like a billion dollars for an office in San Francisco that they didn't need. But, like, just you looked under the surface. He's, they got the Pac-12 network started. Nobody wanted to carry it. None of the cable companies saw any real value in it. Now the TV deal comes in. George Klyovkov, let's be real, he wasn't hired to run the athletic department or the conference as far as, you know, sporting because he has absolutely no background in college athletics. He was not entertainment. He was brought in to get a TV deal. It's been nine months. They don't have a TV deal that they thought they were going to get, or at least that they pro- like Klyovkov promised that we're going to get a great deal. Clearly there's, you know, the interest isn't there. Whatever you want to hear, whatever you want to believe, whatever reporting you're getting, it's nowhere near it. So, the more that this sport becomes driven and owned by television, and that is the reality of the situation, these schools are now owned by TV networks. They are not owned by their board of trustees or their alumni or whatever the hell you want to consider. The Pac-12 becomes less and less, I think, of a solid entity by every single day that passes. So I don't know that the Arizona schools in Colorado and Utah really want to leave the West Coast to join the Big 12. I don't know that they have a better choice. If you're George Klavkov and you know that the deal you're going to get is bad, it makes sense to wait as long as possible to present the image and probably the reality that you are trying as hard as you can, that you exhausted all options, that you really did look at all possible outlets for your league. Taking a disappointing deal in terms of money and taking it before the last possible minute Makes you look worse, right? Hey, what if we had held out and done this? What if we had done that? So I, I think there's some image management going on here from both sides. I think the Big 12 wants, like, there's no downside for the Big 12 to be like, hey, we're open for business, right? We're trying to do this. We're trying to do that. We action, action, action. And for the Pac-12, it's hey, we're trying as, as best as we can. We're looking at all possible options. Really going through all scenarios. I, that's to me probably what's going on. I, I bet you the number that they're getting is is not particularly good. So it gets put on the table. Let's let's spin this forward real quick, and then we'll move on. It gets put on the table. The four corner schools say we're not signing that. That we are going to just let this deal run out, and the Big Twelve is going to be there for us when this deal expires. The other six schools that would be remaining at that point would then what? Would would they expand, or would that lead? Is is that then the thing? Because this is like that's why I'm said I'm I'm keeping an eye on this because. If those four schools get presented with the deal, they say no, and they say no because when the deal expires, they know that they've got a home in the Big 12. That's going to have Oregon and Washington working the phones saying, hey, remember when you said let us know when it's time? Well, it's time, and then the Big 10 has to start getting things moving if that were to be the case. The remaining schools are left to you know, your Cal, your Stanford. You're, you're just trying to figure out what the future of the conference is going to be or would the Pac-6 at that point try to band together, try to pick up some schools and try to remain intact as a conference. Well, we saw Klyovkov at the game with the SMU athletic director. There's been all the reports of San Diego State and SMU going to the Pac-12. Why the hell haven't they gone yet? Like, if you're San Diego State and SMU, why would you say no? Oh, so I don't know about the league's like process, but it, it, an invitation may not have been extended at this point officially. So that's kind of getting to my point, though, with like the four schools and what would their choice be if they say no? Just I I don't know. This is all speculation on my part. But the way every the wind all seems to be blowing when you read the tea leaves or whatever kind of cliche you want to use. It does not look good for the Pac-12. Nothing I see is encouraging for what is going to happen to that conference. It's just there's from what I like the, from what little I do know, because again, when it comes to realignment, I don't know any school presidents. So <laughs> I don't have any information there. And when it comes to TV deals, I don't have tons of connections at television networks, but I it's based on what I've read. Like Amazon was supposed to be the saving grace of that conference and buy all its games and keep it afloat. Amazon wants a Friday night game. Amazon doesn't want anything else. 
It doesn't care about Saturday. It knows it's not going to get anybody watching those games on Saturday. It wants the Friday night game. ESPN doesn't want anything but the late night game because they know nobody's going to watch any other games during the afternoon over what else ESPN is already broadcasting. I don't know where this life vote is coming from or this life vest to give them money to keep them afloat is going to be. I think it's sinking fast, honestly. I, I think that if they did lose the four corner schools, they would replace them, right? Uh, to me, the value of the Pac-12, you have Washington and Oregon, and from a national TV standpoint, because I don't want to dis- discredit or disparage the fan bases of the remaining schools, but the real value to the networks is the late time slot. Do we really care who's playing in a late time slot as long as we can stamp Pac-12 on it? Like, mm-hmm. as the average viewer who's staying up and watching this stuff, maybe they're feeding their kid or they're, or they're just getting home from the bar. Maybe they're just going out to the bar or live betting it or whatever. Do they really care about San Diego State versus Arizona in terms of program quality? Probably not, right? It's football. It's on late. It fills an inventory need for certain networks. Like, that. the, the names don't really matter as long as we stamp it, hey, it's Pac-12, right? We're not the just names, some... The names do matter, though. because Between Arizona and San Diego State? If Arizona is joining the Big 12, they're going to be the late-night game. It's going to be the Big 12's late-night game, not the Pac-12. Because if the Pac-12 expands and it adds San Diego State, SMU, a couple other Mountain West schools, maybe some Conference USA Western schools, it's no longer a Power 5 conference. And that is going to matter as far as television ratings. Because if you compare the late-night games of the Pac-12 when they're on compared to the Mountain West game that's on at the same time, the Pac-12 game is getting better, better ratings than the Mountain West game. And if the Pac-12 then becomes the Mountain West. How are we defining Power 5 Conference? Like in terms of like teams that we think can actually like, you know, make a real run in the playoff, I would still think it's probably Pac-12 with one and the Big 12 with zero, right? So I I think the power power is much deeper at that point. TCU just played in the title game. I know, and I bet them all year. Like, Tom, you did too. But I mean, realistically – like that that's like the Cinderella run of all time. Like they don't recruit to that level. We kind of know what it takes to to win the whole thing. Oregon's the only school out of the entire current back Big 12 or Pac 12 that plays at that level. I, I don't know. Like, are we really gonna but say Pac 12 is not power five and the Big 12 is? Yeah, because money's gonna determine what power five is. And that's, the Big 12 is gonna yeah. be making a lot more money than the Pac 12. So therefore the Big 12 is still going to get an automatic berth, and the new look Pac 12 will be shuttled into you can have that automatic. You, you can new look Pac 12 will be automatic berth. Not, not if it loses those four schools and it has to take in a bunch of G5 programs. No. It's not going to be a power conference anymore. It's going to be, if it's getting the same kind of TV deal that the Mountain West is. Yeah, the, the, the power football playoff wants me, ratings. It doesn't want a bunch of teams nobody cares about. Power conference to me has been decided by the financials because when you, even the ACC and the Pac-12 at the bottom of the power five, they are still on the upper side of a cliff before you get down to those media rights annual payouts that you get in the rest of the group of five. So if the Pac-12 is getting paid like a G5. It's a G5. It's a G5. Or G6 at this point. You know, like Gonzaga. Under the new deal, it's five of the top six conference champions automatically get in, right? Yeah. No, the top six highest rated conference champions. There's no power five. Sorry, right. That That's why, yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, you still got a path to the playoff. Um, is it any of them? You know, like, the Pac-12 can't. The Pac-12 champion is not high, more highly rated than six other uh, six other conference champions. Pac-12 doesn't have an automatic bid. But do they change that? That's another thing. Do they go from top six to top five? Buckeye 01 in the chat says power conferences are determined by TV viewership. Guess what? TV viewership means media rights deals. Media rights deals yeah. equals money. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it'll be interesting. Again, I kind of like the deadline here just so that I can put it to the side. So if March comes and goes and we get to April and we don't have any big movement, then maybe the PAC 12 is able to announce a deal and everyone jumps on board. We've put this whole thing to bed at least for four to five years. However, things could move really quickly. So as always, and, um, and one more thing, uh, George, Georgie, if you need, we cannot pay you. But we'll show mm-hmm. all of your games on the Cover 3 Podcast YouTube channel. And well, again, we can't, this is like internship. We can offer you exposure and experience, but we cannot, cannot offer you money. If you would like the exposure and the experience of being partnered with the Cover 3 Podcast, we can, we can air your Pac-12 games here on the Cover 3 YouTube channel. 
I mean, we're big Colorado boosters. We'll keep them around. That's all. That's the move you got to make. Come on. This is take this to your university presidents. Say, guys, I've got it. I know exactly how we're going to save the conference. The lifeboat is here. It is the Cover Three Podcast YouTube channel. We will offer you pregame, halftime, and postgame, in-game analysis, live betting, all of that. We just cannot pay at all. But remember the experience and the exposure. In fact, some would say you should pay us to broadcast your games mm. because we will give you the kind of exposure nobody else can, the kind of coverage nobody else can or will, and the kind of insight nobody else can. It's a sweetheart deal, George. Just take mm -hmm. it to your university presidents. I think they'll be on board. Um, another topic that will be going around all of uh, college football, especially at the SEC and the Big Ten, some of these conferences that are expanding in the future, is going to be the future scheduling model. A reminder, Texas and Oklahoma finally reached its deal with the Big 12 so that it can be in the SEC for the 2024 season. So now all of the athletic directors uh, are going to be getting together with Commissioner Greg Sankey here in the spring meetings over the next several weeks, trying to determine what the league schedule is going to look like. We did an amazing, award-winning, worthy episode here on the Cover 3 podcast, trying to take you through how much of a painful process it can be uh, trying to schedule and team up all of these permanent partners using the three plus six scheduling model. Nick Saban, big fan of the show, listened to it and said, they're giving us, all right, they're giving us Tennessee, Auburn, and LSU. All right? I don't know how they come to that. Full quote. By the way, he said this to uh, Sports Illustrated's Ross Dellinger. Uh, I've always been an advocate for playing more conference games, Saban says, but if you play more games, I think... I think you have to get three fixed opponents right. They're giving us Tennessee, Auburn, and LSU. I don't know how they come to that. And the tone of Nick Saban's comments is that that's too hard. Do you feel sorry for Whittle Nick Saban and the fact that Alabama – and by the way, these are the same three that we selected. Remember, we had that big talk about Alabama-LSU. So we have ticked off Nick. Do you feel bad for Nick Saban and the possibility that Alabama might have – to Nick's eyes, an unfair and overly difficult draw in the future SEC schedule. First of all, I, thank I you for watching the show, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel so sorry for Nick Saban. He, he has to continue playing Auburn, LSU, and Tennessee, three teams which, um, oh, he already plays every <laughs> single year, and which during his Alabama tenure, he has gone 38 and 11 against, 38 and 11 against Auburn, Tennessee, LSU since he got to be the head coach of the Crimson Tide. And now he's going to complain about it. But did he complain about it before? Did Nick Saban say a damn thing about playing LSU, Auburn, or Tennessee on an annual basis? Chip, Chip Tom, have you guys... Let's he wanted to go to Jordan. nine. He's been out there yeah. telling about how they should go to nine for years, and now they're going to nine. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're making me play too many tough games. And now because Tennessee doesn't completely suck, and, and, and because Hugh Freeze got hired at Auburn, now that's too tough? You're getting out of the SEC West, Nick Saban. I, your schedule on an annual basis is going to be easier relative to the rest of the league than it was. I, I think Saban's worried a little bit here. Like He clearly doesn't have that much time left. He's not going to coach until he's 100. He wants to make one more title run, I would guess. And look, now that Tennessee has their act together, it's a little bit tougher. So my tiny violin for the Alabama Crimson Tide and Nick Saban. I will say that you, what'd you say? That was uh 38 and 11. Yeah. Okay. So that's a 775 winning percentage against those three teams by the Nick Saban, Alabama standard. That's pretty, that's, that's below average. These are, the, these are the teams that, you know, give him the substandard results. Uh, again, the standard of Nick Saban at Alabama being an 875 winning percentage. <laughs> of those of those 11 losses only one was to Tennessee though right yeah just this year so like the other 10 are all LSU Auburn which I don't so I, I from his point of view I, I don't feel bad for him because again like you said they've played him every year I think he would probably be fine keeping Auburn and Tennessee I think Nick's problem is having to keep playing LSU like he doesn't think that should be an annual thing is my guess so what is Nick Saban's ideal schedule Mississippi State Arkansas and what, Auburn? Andy. No, fan. <laughs> Look, I like, Bud, I like your point. Like, Nick, 
you are getting an easier schedule. You are going to be facing like there. You are losing SEC West teams for SEC East teams. You will be playing SEC East teams on average far more often than you have been. But Alabama's be, schedule is getting easier. I'm going to take Nick's side again here, even though I don't really agree with him. Um, if you look at the SEC West over the last hell, just entire Saban's entire tenure at Alabama. Who are the other two SEC West teams that have been the second best and third best behind Alabama? They're LSU and Auburn. They're the other ones that have won national titles in that time. Texas A&M had, has had one really good season in the SEC. Ole Miss and Mississippi State have up and down years. Arkansas is up and down. So, yeah, he's losing the SEC West, but he's losing the portion of the SEC West in this scenario in which he has dominated. So it's like... I get it. I understand why he doesn't want LSU on the schedule every year. He would much rather have Mississippi State or Arkansas or Ole Miss or even AM possibly. So, yeah, I don't know. 10 of the 27 losses that Nick Saban has had at Alabama have come against Auburn and LSU. Mm -hmm. They say that you remember the losses. Apparently, Nick Saban just feels like he's getting crushed right now. Over a third of them. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Um, yeah, but that's again, the big story here, you know, uh, Nick Saban is making his case, hoping to shake things up. Uh, I expect that Alabama will come out of the scheduling if they do, if they do end up going three plus six, cause that's the other option here is there has been a suggestion that everybody just has one, but if you only have the one permanent rival and then cycle everyone through, uh, you are going to be saying goodbye to annually playing. Alabama, Tennessee, you know, and that's something that I think some of those secondary rivalries that we discussed all along the way uh, are going to be enticing uh, to the television partners. You want to get the Texas, Texas A&M in addition to Texas and Oklahoma. I, I would be surprised if Nick Saban or anyone else is able to convince the SEC athletic directors and the media partners to go to a one permanent rival and rotate everyone else kind of model. If you, uh, if you look at what Dellinger put out, and this is similar to sort of when we were kicking around the idea of what if they did it for max ratings, what Dellinger put out is pretty close to what we had put out for max ratings, mm -hmm. right? Like, we, we, we asked on our, on our show, which I, I thought was one of the funnest shows we've ever done, and the Big, Tw Big Ten one was a blast as well. Like, is this going to be about fairness? Is it going to be about, about preserving tradition and rivalries? Or is it going to be about ESPN saying, hey, we are paying you how many billions? We want the biggest games, and we want them all the time. If Dellinger's right about this, uh, ESPN is the one driving the bus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the, it's, that is a ratings-looking schedule with a couple of, of exceptions. And that is a possible unconsidered side effect of putting all your games with one network because they have total control over it now. Very, very, very good point right there. Again, SEC spring meetings will be coming up in the next several weeks, and uh, we anticipate to get a good bit of news to chew on from that. Coming up on the other side, the NFL Draft Combine took place over the weekend. All of our favorite college football stars in the National Football League spotlight. Takeaways from the Combine. Maybe give out some golden dumbbells. Next. Did you know that while over 60% of Americans dream of starting their own business, less than 20% of them take the first step? The reason? Building a business is tough. Taylor Brands is simplifying the business journey. From launching and managing to growing your business, Taylor Brands isn't just another tool. It's your online business partner from launch to success. With Taylor Brands, building your dream business becomes an effortless experience. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, ensuring you have everything you need in one place. From LLC formation to bookkeeping, invoicing to acquiring licenses and permits, and even setting up your bank account, Taylor Brands handles it all seamlessly. And our listeners will receive 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans using our link, taylorbrands.com slash CBS Sports. That's T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S dot com slash CBS Sports. So start your business journey today with Taylor Brands. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. 
Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Brackets are back, and you can get in the madness today on the CBS Sports app. Run men's and women's pools with friends and enter our bracket challenges for the chance to win a new car and trips to the 2024 Final Four. Play today on the CBS Sports app or visit cbsports.com slash play to sign up. No purchase necessary. See terms and rules for details. We'll have a... uh, we, we have a cover three bracket challenge that we will be certainly telling you about so that you can come and join us, compete against us uh, in the best place to do bracket games, cbssports.com. So the NFL Draft Combine was over the weekend, and we had, uh, let's see, Bryce, let's start with the quarterbacks because Bryce Young was not going to throw, but he was going to be measured. So, of course, there's going to be takeaways from his height, his weight, who knows how much he ate, Heading into that, his hand size is another uh, notable from Young. Then we not only got measurables from Anthony Richardson, CJ Stroud, Will Levis, but those three also had to put on a nice little display, tossing around the old pigskin. Stetson Bennett stepped up and uh, made some big throws. So from the quarterback side of things, uh, what really stood out to y'all? I thought CJ Stroud was phenomenal. Like, Everybody at the time was focusing on Anthony Richardson's 40. They were focusing on him as his vertical jump. And there was the one video that NFL, the account tweeted out about his, one of his long throws. And it was, don't get me wrong. Anthony Richardson's 40 was incredible. His vertical is incredible. That long throw was just very, very nice. It's one of those things that you understand what everybody likes about him. But as far as everything else, I think C.J. Stroud missed one throw. Like, he made one bad throw in any of the drills because, like, they have the receivers running the routes and they have all the quarterbacks rotating in, making all these kind of different throws. They're evaluating everybody during the process. Stroud's accuracy, his timing, everything was perfect except for one throw I saw him miss. Meanwhile, I saw Anthony Richardson miss a lot of throws, and that has been the knock. So when I watched the combine this weekend with the quarterbacks, it really didn't change my mind on anything. I kind of saw what I expected. I think as far as performance-wise, the most surprising thing to me was Stetson Bennett because some of his throws that you didn't see him make very often in the Georgia offense were impressive. Like he was making throws outside the hash marks and outside the numbers that just weren't part of that Georgia offense. And it was like there was good zip on it, good placement, all that kind of stuff. So I think Stetson Bennett helped himself out. I think Anthony Richardson was Anthony Richardson. He showed you what's so enticing about him because if it happens, if it clicks, that kid's going to be incredible. But there's still a lot that has to click. C.J. Stroud was the most polished. As far as Bryce Young, he weighed in at 205, and that's why he didn't do any of the drills because all he cared about for the combine was coming in over 200 pounds. By the time we see him at his pro day and playing weight, he's going to be back down to, my guess, is 185, 190. Totally. Bryce Young just loaded up on carbs. Um, I, I do think that coming in at, at 5'10 and 1'8 probably confirms your worst fears about his height. Uh, if you've seen Bryce Young in person, you realize he was not six foot tall. Um, that 5'10 and an 8 is consistent-ish with what he measured in at various recruiting camps. So I think at the very least, we can say that he has not grown upward since uh, his high school days when he was at Alabama. Certainly he grew out a little bit. I don't think there's any way he plays at 204. Like that's probably the last time he ever weighs in anywhere publicly, right? Like he's going to play in the high 180s or low 190s, I I would imagine. From a concern standpoint, it is a little bit of a concern for me uh, that he is that short because guys who are that short have historically had some problems throwing over the middle in the NFL. And that is an area where Bryce really does well in college football. So if it's his strength in college, but they play the splits and the schemes a little bit differently in the NFL, I think it's fair to say like that is a concern, but the guy is still a really good competitor. He's deadly accurate. I think the anticipation and the movement within the pocket to the slide and if you make sure to give him those passing windows, he definitely slides to find them, right? He evades rush well. And for all the durability concerns, 
I mean, he missed what one game with with the shoulder, and that was when he was really just going all out. So, uh, I mean, the measurements are are what they are. He really couldn't do much about the height, uh, and I think that the weight. It's not like that the GMs are going to fool themselves. It's more again, like we talked about with the Pac-12 and Big 12, criticism avoidance. PR, managing your image. If you're a GM and you use the number one overall pick on Bryce Young and he's like the shortest quarterback ever to go number one overall and he's also under 200 pounds and he busts, you look dumb. If he's at least 200 pounds, you could say, hey, he's the same size as Kyler Murray, right? So you look less dumb. So I think it makes him more palatable to all teams, even though these teams aren't dumb. They're like, they don't think he's actually going to play at 200 plus. It's just you're less likely to get fired for, for the, your owner coming back to you and say, hey, that was pretty stupid to take a kid who was under 200 pounds, right? So, yeah. Stroud is, is uh, he's kind of like Kirk Cousinsy to me in a good way. Like, extremely good when, when it's within structure, really accurate. He can read stuff out pretty fast. He doesn't have a lot of history of creating when it's off schedule. And that's just... Kind of against Georgia, he actually did some of that, which I think makes really enticing and encouraging. But within structure, man, he is—he's an assassin. That guy is just deadly accurate, can make all the throws, and and a great competitor. Is Stroud the QB one now? He might have played himself into it. I honestly, I. I don't think anybody really changed their QB board this weekend. I think most of the teams. Wherever they had these guys is probably where they still have them. I think as far as at the top, you might have seen some of the guys below move up based on the way that they performed in the combine. But if you had Young over Stroud on your board, you probably still have Young on over Stroud because Young didn't really perform. So there's no reason to knock him down. Stroud, if you had him over Young, you saw everything, the reason that you had him above Young to begin with. If you had Anthony Richardson over both of them, the reasons you had Anthony Richardson above them on your board, you saw them at the combine. He ran a 4-4. He had what? Like, what was his vertical? Like 40 something? 40.5 inch vertical, 10 9 broad jump. The kid's nuts. Like, it's he's an incredible athlete. He's still the one thing, too. Like, when you watch Anthony Richardson tape, there are a lot of quarterbacks that you see coming out of college that have absolutely no idea how to read a defense. That's not the case with Anthony Richardson. He reads, he reads defenses, he understands what he's up against, and he makes progressions. The only thing with Richardson that to me is the serious concern is the accuracy because his throws are wildly inconsistent. And when they're on target, they're incredible. But there's too many times when they're just not on target. Totally agree. Like, let's have that Anthony Richardson discussion. So I agree with Tom. It's probably still the order that you had it coming in for the most part. But I think there is some chance that on some boards, AR-15 has leapt Will Levis. Right, yeah, those, those yeah, are kind of your yeah, two physical freaks, and and now side by side at the combine. I mean, Anthony Richardson is putting up Vernon Davis type combine numbers. Literally, like they're, they're, if you look at the measurements there, it, Anthony Richardson would rate as one of the most athletic defensive end prospects ever to come into the league. I mean, he as an edge rusher, he would be sick. As a tight end prospect, his numbers would be insane. I I think that that Tom using the word kid there is actually really apt. Anthony Richardson is still 20 years old, and mm-hmm. he can read a defense somewhat. Now, look, I, do I think some stuff was simplified for him at Florida? Yeah. Dan Mullen, who's a QB guru, struggled to get him on the field as a freshman. Billy Napier, certainly not a QB guru. Like, they you know, struggled to move the ball at times this year with him. I do think he got banged up in that Kentucky game like we talked about uh, last week with, with, with that clip. But, man, he just hasn't thrown that many passes. He only threw for 1,300 yards as a senior in high school. And if the guy can figure out where the ball needs to go and his throwing motion from an arm standpoint is not like horrendous. And, and I don't mm-hmm. think it is. Then maybe there's a real argument to be made that just better footwork, more repetitions, more passes with this guy can get him to deliver the football more accurately. Like the stroke just needs to become a more consistent motion. Yeah, my, my biggest fear for Anthony Richardson is because like we often overlook how much experience plays into this because it's the hardest position on the field in the sport. And it's one of those things where you're only going to get better by the more reps you get in live action against equitable talent against you. Like if you're just playing like just cupcakes, you're probably not going to get better. But when you're playing against the kind of competition you're facing in the SEC every week, you can improve. When you get to the NFL, you improve. 
But I do think that the worst thing that it could happen to Anthony Richardson is he gets drafted and he goes to a team that throws him out there right away. Like if he gets drafted by a bad team and is then put out there in the NFL from week one and they tell him to learn on the fly, he could develop a whole lot of bad habits that he doesn't break. I think the best thing in the world that can happen to Richardson is maybe he doesn't, he'll, he'll get taken in the top 10. He, the way he yeah. performed at the combine, I just think that he's going to go. But if he gets taken by a team that has like a veteran option ahead of him, so at least he could spend a year learning the NFL process and just getting more comfortable and getting some better coaching as far as the footwork and all that kind of stuff to get him prepared. And then in year two, become the starter. I think the odds of him hitting and becoming an, a plus value NFL quarterback go much higher than if he gets thrown, if like if he gets taken by the Texans at number two and thrown out there, I think that'd be terrible for him. 100%. Like, I, I would like to see him, and I'm not a big NFL head, but the Seahawks still have Geno Smith, mm-hmm. right? And they had, they had a nice year. That's an offense that, like, could be fun. They'd like to throw the ball down the field, could use his mobility. If he can sit, learn, maybe he needs to sit the whole year. Maybe he needs to sit half a year. Like, the Seahawks have multiple first-round picks. They have a young offensive line that, that, that's building. They, they picked Charles Cross, like, last year or the year before, and I know he was a hit there. The thing with Richardson, if you're an NFL GM, you're thinking, okay, last year's quarterback draft sucked. Next year, we have two guys who we think are probably top five type picks. There's not an obvious number three for mm-hmm. next year. So, like the, so far, I mean, the drop-off might be pretty decent. At this time last year, we did not have AR-15 as nope. a top four draft quarterback prospect for the most part. This dude's tools, if he hits, are are the best tools in the NFL, Right. From a, a physical standpoint, I don't think anybody is better than him total package. Like, like Josh Allen may have a bigger arm, but Richardson is considerably faster. With these new quarterback contracts that they give to rookies, it doesn't kill your salary cap to take one and have them quote-unquote bust or not turn in to the best player in the draft. Back when you were taking Sam Bradford or Matt Stafford, if that guy busted, you were dead for a couple years from a salary cap standpoint. You know, If I'm an NFL GM, I'm thinking... All right, was Jalen Hurts ever a good passer in college? No. Do we build an offense around him that runs him a bunch, that uses the threat of his legs on probably 50 or 60% of the plays that we run? And can I build a superstar roster around him while he's cheap in that four- to five-year window? Uh, and then, look, if he blossomed into something awesome, I'll gladly extend him because I have the best player in the NFL. If his Like, that's his full ceiling, right? I think his floor is much lower than the other quarterbacks. Like Anthony Richardson's ceiling is to be an MVP for a season in the NFL. Yes. Yes. Like he he keeps getting compared to Cam Newton, although I think it's pretty disrespectful to Cam because Cam was a much better, I think, quarterback coming out of college than Anthony Richardson was at this point. But, I mean, Cam, we saw Cam at his best in the NFL, won the MVP. Anthony Richardson, if everything clicks – He's going to be one of those guys in the league that is just, you know, it's like you feel like if you have him on your team, you're probably going to be winning games and making the playoffs every year. And that's why, like, we could talk about his production at college all we want, and there's plenty of things to pick apart. But that's why NFL teams are so high on him, because it's still projection. It's if it clicks, we could win Super Bowls. And that really is the ultimate goal, isn't it? So it's like you want to draft a guy who you think can help you win a Super Bowl. And I think what you said earlier too, bud, and I, I completely spaced on, you're right. He 100% jumped Will Levis on probably everybody's board this weekend at the combine because Will Levis wasn't bad, but Anthony Richardson was just transcendent as far as what he was doing in the in the drills. Well, let me. I like your the the ceiling floor thing because you say it's the lowest floor. It's potentially the highest ceiling, or it is the highest ceiling. Oh, he's the highest. I ceiling. think it's the highest ceiling. Okay, yeah. So, Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud. How do you measure those ceiling floors? Because it, I, I think we might have just said it a couple minutes ago, but like C.J. Stroud to me, the the word that gets used a lot is the safe pick. Seems like a high floor pick. You know exactly what he looks like, what he's going to do. And as long as the circumstance, as you mentioned, bud, is like set up around him, he is going to absolutely ball. Bryce Young, other than physical, I don't know what you're picking apart about Bryce Young. Um, how are the ceiling and floors, how do they compare for those those two quarterbacks who I think right now are leading the QB1 debate with Anthony Richardson sort of as the, the, the lottery ticket that exists with a higher ceiling but also a lower floor? I think Stroud's the higher floor. Bryce is the higher ceiling. Because I, it's, for me, it's just the physical aspects. 
to me, make Stroud the higher floor because I feel like he could step in and physically he's already ready to be an NFL QB. He might not be a pro bowler. He might not be a top half of the league, but that's a guy who I'm fairly confident could start in a year or two for a number of NFL teams. Bryce Young, the only question is, like Bud was talking earlier, will he be able to do, do the damage over the middle that he's done so well at the college level considering his size? And can he withstand the beating that an NFL quarterback is going to take? Because even though they have rules to protect him, it only takes one hit. And when you are as slight as Bryce Young is, like he wasn't injury prone in college, not the way Tua was at Alabama. But the one injury he had to his shoulder was from being tripped from behind falling and just his arm popping out based on the way he landed, and that's a frame thing and if you're getting hit by nfl guys who are all 285 pounds and running four fives you know what i mean like they're not coming light if you do get hit so i think bryce young just everything he does all the intangibles if he stays healthy that's a guy that could be one of the best quarterbacks in the league cj stroud i think has to show more of what he did against georgia to reach that kind of ceiling. And I think it's there. I just think Bryce Young's is higher. Yeah, I, I think you can argue it both ways, but I, I do tend to lean towards Tom there. I, I think if, if we're placing them, Richardson, highest ceiling, lowest floor, Levis, second highest ceiling, second lowest floor, and then Bryce and CJ kind of more like that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the floor for those two, I think is considerably higher. The ceiling is high, but it's not like Levis and, and Richardson, right? Um, this question coming from the chat. Oh, as always, come and join us at youtube.com slash cover three. Um, is there any concern with CJ Stroud throwing to a crazy stacked wide receiver room? Like, is he that good or do they make him look that good? I didn't watch him as much as the other three. I think he is that good. I'll get out of the way, but let me just say, like, I I think CJ Stroud is an inc- has been an incredible college quarterback. He has had very gifted wide receivers, but he is diced up some good defenses it works both ways like cj stroud made those guys look better a lot of times because the throw was always where it was supposed to be and they made him look better at times because when the throw is off they have the ability to make the catch like you saw like garrett wilson with the jets when he's playing with zach wilson and joe flacco you saw his talent because he was still able to make plays despite not playing with the quarterbacks as polished as the guys he was playing with at ohio state in college but i there's no quarterback on earth that would be like, nah, give me bad receivers. He's going to be throwing to pros. That's the other That's thing. I'm like, oh, oh, he was throwing to future NFL players. Well, how about when he's throwing to current NFL players? Like, yeah, if I don't care who my quarterback is, I want to give him good receivers to throw to. I mean, the, the crux of the question really is how are his throws? Or this is at least what, what I think the question is. The question is, like, how are CJ Shroud's throws into tight windows when the guy is not very open. And I think that that's really where his accuracy kind of shines. He does a nice job of hitting guys in stride oftentimes, especially now when he has to move his feet a little bit less. So, so like that, that the off platform stuff maybe is, is where he's going to have to get better and more willing and comfortable doing so. But like within structure, man, he, he's a surgeon. I I think like, honestly, Bryce had good pieces around him for the most part. Bama's receiver room was down compared to normal standards, but like still multiple Bama offensive linemen off the line. He played with, will get drafted. Latham is probably the number one offensive tackle prospect for the 24 draft. Uh, Richardson, to be honest, guys, had a tremendous offensive line in front of him. He's going to have the number one guard prospect uh, in, in Torrance. Corey Age is also going to get picked. He had two starters go to USC, who I think both have a chance to get picked in next year's draft. And they had one of their top backups in Braun go to Arkansas, who's going to be a starter. So Richardson, if you look at it from like a sack avoidance perspective and who was around him, was great. I also wonder like how much of that was the fact that Florida kind of sneakily had one of the very best offensive lines in the country last year. And obviously, you know, Stroud had tremendous supporting staff. Levis supporting staff was horrendous. I mean, I think they made a terrible offensive coordinator hire. Their offensive line was a disaster this year. They had some some talent at receiver, but a lot of it was kind of young. I mean, that's the one guy that I'm willing to most excuse it and say, ooh, he wasn't better as a senior. What changed? Personnel around him and coaching around him, I think, took a major step back. Yeah, yeah. Um- Jordan, when you said, uh, let's hit the question for Vols fan, I I thought you were talking about this banger right here where uh, he said in the chat, technically Bryce Young has the highest ceiling because he's the shortest. (laughs) 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 Amazing stuff. Cover three live audiences uh, always delivering the goods.
Coming up on the other side, I, quarterbacks obviously are going to dominate a lot of the conversation. But that's not all the. That's not all that drew big headlines and got our attention from the weekend. More of our NFL draft combine takeaways next. Well, the testing numbers uh, all over the place bring in uh, our attention to some names that that we have known, uh, you know, for a long time. Uh, you know, George offensive lineman Broderick Jones. I saw uh, Daniel Jeremiah brought, was bringing up a lot of the comps through the weekend, uh, looking like Iki Aquanu out here, one of the top tackles that was taken in last year's draft class. DJ Turner from Michigan had a terrific forty time. So did Texas A and M's Devin A Chain. Darnell Washington just showed up looking very much uh, to the billing of being one of the most athletically freakish players in the entire draft class uh, who stood out from some of the other NFL whistle spotlight, you know, handful of players in the time that we've got left who really stood out good or bad uh, from the combine. I, the one thing this edge rusher, edge rusher, edge rusher class is incredible. And to me, it's, it's more of it's not even so much about this class as much as it's just kind of the evolution of the sport and the way that things have gone in that like you know it used to be there'd be the one freakish edge rusher guy and it's like wow that guy's incredible now everybody is running the same they look the same they run the same <laughs> they're all fetching the same leaping the same do it all it's every like the fifth round edge rusher pick is going to be an incredible freaky athlete in this class so that was one thing that stood out to me Adam Bawar from Northwestern who is 280 pounds and ran like what a 469 was it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> His little brother by the way who signed with Oklahoma is a stud. Yeah. Well, watch out for him in 3 years. And like like why like that guy is why is Northwestern growing its grass so long when they have guys who can move like that? <laughs> Dude, Evan Hall too ran really yes, well at the combine. Yes. I'm like, oh, it, it's nice not not to run the US Open rough every, every week. <laughs> <laughs> that stood out to me. I mean, the tight end class was really like Darnell Washington, yeah, it's he's still a physical freak. Although I will say, for a guy that big, a guy that athletic, and a guy that should be dominating, some NFL teams are like, well, then why wasn't he dominating? Was it the offense or was it him? I will say this: sometimes really big guys take a lot longer to grow into their bodies and develop than than smaller guys. And, and I say this like. This is one of my real takeaways when doing these all-star games because I want to see who showcases high-level ability, but I don't really downgrade guys too much if they don't look good because certain guys like you know haven't practiced in a while or like they haven't worn cleats in six weeks and that type of stuff. And I say that because Darnell had some reps where this little five-nine guy who was going to Michigan absolutely punked him at the Under Armour All-America game, and Darnell is like six-seven and and it looked like he was Darnell's kid, right? But like Darnell. Didn't time his jumps right, looked kind of sluggish, didn't get up and, and, and make a lot of plays. Now, he had a couple that were nice in, in, in the, the week of practice, but I do think that he is still growing as a player a lot. And I, I thought it was a great day of testing for him at the combine. The ability for him to catch the ball and, and you know, do the gauntlet and that kind of stuff was, was really pretty nice. He gives you that kind of true why, that, that, that attached tight end that, that can give you a real extension of the run game. You know, Teams love running 12 personnel if they can. And on the other side of it, we got a lot of flack from some of y'all Notre Dame fans in the chat when I said that the guys we had talked to said Mayer was a really good player, but he wasn't a freak, right? Those coaches were right, guys. The combine numbers for Michael Mayer are not terrible. They just are not great in comparison to some of the other tight ends who ran, and especially when the other big in-line blocking tight end is Darnell Washington, who is an alien, right? You know, and like... If you're an NFL team, are you taking Mayor over Washington? No. If you need an inline tight end, are you taking Mayor over Sam Laporta? Like Laporta, like that's the other thing too. Iowa had a bunch of dudes out here running four fours and four fives. Jack Campbell made me eat my words. We talked yeah. about the All American team going up against an NFL team, and I laid some Jack Campbell slander and heard about it, and then he came out and. It was a very his his three cone drill was good. Like some of his other like testing stuff was uh, was very very impressive. He made a lot of money. I mean, mm -hmm. Jack Campbell is such a smart player, and all he had to do because what he does on tape as far as 
his drops, right? Understanding like spacing route concepts. They're running this guy at this angle this way, which means they're going to have to run somebody underneath here. You know, cut cut it, as a cutoff player, uh, the he really knows how to play the game of football. He just had to run that magical four seven number, and the fact that he got under there, Jack Campbell cashed in because now teams can feel comfortable taking him. The ODU tight end also has been flagged as like a big riser. And so that's another thing for Mayer where you're looking around and you're seeing all these other tight end stocks starting to go up. And now there's going to be a lot of pressure on him at, at pro days and additional workouts to try and show something that wasn't on display in Indianapolis. He was a top 125 kid for us, by the way. Like the, Zach Kuntz was not unknown. He just he was a developmental prospect with a lot of athletic upside and was like 6'7", 215-ish in high school. And now he's like 6'7", 255 probably. Is that like Ricky Ronnie gets to know him from yeah. the recruiting process mm-hmm. and then pulls him over to ODU? Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so we, we, we cannot let another... I will not let another second step in before we get to talk about Nolan Smith because it's not enough for Nolan Smith's 4-3-9-40 time, which is the second fastest 40 time of any edge rusher since 2003. He also had a 41.5-inch vertical leap and he also did all of this after being ruled out for the season on November 1st with the torn pectoral. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand that, well, I, I don't understand human bodies all that well, but your legs are not your pecs. I understand that. But Nolan Smith to undergo the entire injury and recovery process and get his body tuned up so that he could be, without a doubt, one of the most athletically freakish players at the NFL Draft Combine. Congratulations. You are my Golden Dumbbell Award winner, Nolan Smith. That was uh, an amazing weekend in Indianapolis. Yeah, the questions around Nolan Smith are where do they play him? Because it's like he is 240 pounds, so can he line up at end? Can he be, is he an outside linebacker? Can he withstand tight ends who are 6'7 and 200 some odd pounds that he might be facing in the NFL? But just as far as athleticism and then just honestly, personality, charisma, all those intangibles, like that dude is a football player and whoever drafts him is going to be very happy to get him. It's just the only question is I think some teams have is where do we play him? Cause he's kind of a tweener in a lot of spots. He was a top five recruit in the country. I mean, he was power cleaning three plates. So three fifteen as like a 16 year old and was running like four, four, or like, like four or five ish on the laser as a 16, 17 year old down there at IMG Academy. I think the question with Nolan Smith are, you know, where is the production? And when you watch Nolan Smith in games, it's not like sometimes these defensive ends don't have good production because they take plays off. Nolan Smith seems to play hard, right? He's a good pursuit guy. He's a willing run defender. I just think he is a guy who does struggle with length. And he's only six foot two. He has 32 inch arms. That's kind of the issue is that longer tackles don't struggle with him all that much, despite the speed. You know, I, honestly, I look at Nolan Smith and I see a guy who might not play on the outside in the NFL. I, th- I, I had him as I a see, linebacker. I see Interrupt. somebody who could be an interior linebacker and kind of like a cover two, co- like a coverage scheme, somebody who can drop back and cover guys over the middle. I think that is something that he could be useful for. Utilize his instincts, like mm-hmm. utilize his ability to be in the right position at the right time. A, a lot of those compliments that we had for Jack Campbell. Yeah, and and just based on, like I said, just who the what the kid seems like. You know, you talk to him, and, you, and like honest to God, they were interviewing him during the combine, and I feel like, oh my God, this kid's going to be hosting NF. He's going to be he's going to be an analyst analyst after he retires, and it's not going to be a question. But he just has everything about him from his motor and from his intelligence. You see him on the field. If you move him to middle linebacker, he'll pick it up. It might not happen as a rookie, but he's going to figure it out pretty quick, just because he seems like a really smart, intelligent kid, and he works hard. So. I, I, I see a ton of different stuff for him. It's just it's going to be depending on what team wants him to do and where they think he fits. Do we want to yeah, talk I, to- Well, Sanders at Arkansas is a similar thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Came in, came in as an edge rusher. Arkansas played him an inside backer, was super disruptive. I, I wonder if that'll be if that'll be similar. Sorry, I just kind of popped in the head. No, no, no that's, a re- that's a good comp. Um, I feel like we can't have this podcast without mentioning how nice it was to see Jackson Smith and Jigba playing football again and how well he did during the drills. And it's like, oh, yeah, that kid is a really good wide receiver, and that hamstring looks really healthy, so I'm very happy for him there. 
And uh, the one disappointment for me, because I had him in my latest mock, first round, late, end of the first, because I thought the combine was going to be an area where he had a really good day. Even though I was worried about his measurables, I thought his performance in the drills was going to be great, but he just had a bad, bad day. Kayshawn Booty, LSU, just, mm. just a bad weekend. And I think I, I thought he could play himself into the first round unless he has a really good pro day. I think he's played himself into the third or fourth round at the, at the combine this weekend. I don't know who reps him, but if you are Kayshawn Booty's management team, you have to know what your guy is running entering the event. And if his times are that bad, don't go to the combine or don't run. Just don't measure run, in yeah. <laughs> and say, hey, I'll run at pro day. Right? Like that, he definitely cost himself some money mm. because in the best case, he says, oh, I was kind of dinged up and uh, runs a much better time. In his pro day, NFL teams are still going to be like, that's kind of failing the common sense test to come here and run that poorly, right? Like, like, are, are you going to, can we trust you to be prepared? It, it That's not a good number for him. Um, I think he's faster than that, to be honest. Just, just watching him run against guys who. I, hmm. We mentioned JSN. I wonder if he was dealing with some sort of hammy thing. Because when you watch him play, like, four or five, I was like, what? It's yeah, I like I knew he wasn't gonna be huge. I knew he was gonna have the longest arms to be the tallest guy out there because you see him. But when you see him playing, it's like he looks much faster than four or five. It yeah, is disappointing agreed. to me that Kayshawn Booty was so electric as a freshman and the production took a step back every ensuing season. He got good quarterback play this year from Jane Daniels. Um, but for the most part, we mentioned Daniels up and down. It was a little bit of a roller coaster at times, but this, uh, you know, that that's a situation where, again, if you're an NFL team and I know that, you know, he was limited a little bit in 21 because of injury, but if you're an NFL team, you're seeing this guy who just flashes onto the scene. And then it's like that next step just never, never came when you're trying to make decisions, uh, between wide receivers, there might be somebody else that gets your attention. I will say. There was another LSU receiver back in the day who had a terrible combine and went to be okay in the NFL. Jarvis Landry was awful at the combine the year he came out. He was hurt, and he ran, did all the drills anyway. It impacted his draft stock, and he's had a very solid NFL career. Were you guys surprised that Jair Brown, the, the Penn State safety, ran 4-6-7? Like, I, I thought he was faster than that. I, I didn't think he was going to be close to 4-7, but I didn't think he was going to be blazing. Okay. Uh, B. John like Robinson showed all the versatility that is going to make, like, duh. <laughs> oh, oh, weird. B. John Robinson's incredibly athletic. News at 11. That was a, I, I just wanted to at least throw that on the record. It seems like a duh, no brainer kind of thing for me, but there was definitely some fawning and some, some excitement around B. John's performance at the combine. The sub six foot receivers overall, I feel like were a disappointment. If I'm an NFL team and I want to use a first round pick on a receiver who is not six foot, I want you to run like low four threes, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, Jordan Addison didn't right. Tank Dell didn't a lot of these guys that are these smaller receivers, like it, even uh, um, Tyler Cincinnati ran four, four, four. Like that's a lot faster than me and you, but if you're going to be that short, like I need you to be a real burner. Jalen Waddle type speed and you know Henry Ruggs type speed. Like guys who were sub six in the height category, you have to have great long speed. And this draft, I mean, think about like, were any of these re- like shorter guys serious burner? Which, by the way, Boutte came in at 5'11. So that's really disappointing mm-hmm. for him when you factor that in. But I, this was kind of bad. It's it's not a good receiver class at all. Like we've been kind of spoiled in the last few years in the NFL draft with the receivers that have been coming out and all been first round picks. That's why I think like even though he barely played this year, I still think Jackson Smith and Jigba is the best receiver in this class. And I still think I would take him over just about every single other guy in the class. And the combine just kind of reinforced it to me. Especially because what he does well is separation, especially on the mm-hmm. underneath stuff, the, the stop start. Your three cone, your L drill, your shuttle, that type of stuff is the stuff he killed at the combine. So, mm-hmm. like the tape, what he does well matches up with the testing. It's like that to me seems repeatable in the league. Tape and testing. All right, any anybody else you want to spotlight before we get out of here? 
Uh, I want to spotlight Tank Wright, the Illinois strength and conditioning coach, because Illinois' first-round pick, Devin Witherspoon, didn't do any of the drills, but every other single Illini crushed it. Bunch of dudes running four fours in the Illini. I know you're not used to it, but get used to it. They're a good football team. I don't know exactly who the guy was who was running personnel for Illinois over about a two-year stretch there before Bielema got there. Uh, but Kirk. they really did a nice job. Like, like they went after measurables in the state of Florida. I mean, I, I, Jartavis Martin played at Lehigh, which was just down the street mm-hmm. from me. I, I know their coach well, who's now at, at Colorado. And I remember like the first time I ever saw Jartavis Martin, I was out there at Lehigh's practice with uh, Brandon Streeter. And now I forgot the guy's name. He was wearing a South Alabama polo, but like a couple, a couple other college coaches. And I was like, this kid's not bad. And, and, and James Cheney, their head coach, like, yeah, he's a basketball kid. He's going to play some quarterback and, and some, some corner for us. Because you've seen him jump. And no, I went and watched his basketball stuff. I was like, oh, God. Like, yeah, that's – so I texted Barton about him. This is before I worked for, you know, for 24-7. Um, they really found some true, like, measurable – I know the coaching didn't really work out for Lovey and those guys. But, dude, they found some nice talents there on the Illinois roster and developed them. Yeah, the development yeah, the last cool. few years is kind of what really took off. Like Kirby Joseph was another kind of player where Lovey's coaching staff identified him. The volleyball really find, yeah, they couldn't really find a spot for him. And then the new staff showed up, and all of a sudden the kid is a tremendous free safety, goes in the draft, and had a really good rookie season with the Lions. Um, Kalaja Kansi, just go ahead and get ready. It, the Aaron Donald concert. Yeah, you can't. You can't. He's not Aaron Donald. He's not Aaron Donald. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. He's a little bit undersized. He's so fast off the snap. He's an interior defender who makes up for it with his hands. He played at Pitt. I understand what you want to do, but let that man be Kalijah Kansi and not have to be Aaron Donald. But he had also a great performance, and I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to seeing um, seeing what's coming. Dewan Jones, by the way, if if Orlando Brown can be like turn into a good NFL player and like he's going to get paid in free agency this offseason, then Dewan Jones can do the same. Like they mm-hmm. were both kids, you know, really heavy in high school, enormous like freakazoid frames of you know, six seven six eight, close to four hundred pounds at times, and all of a sudden worked out really well. Like those are the type of dudes are now watching as well. Like they're continuing to grow into learn, learn to use their body. Sometimes these guys aren't really really on top of their game until like, like 27, 28, you know? Yeah. Um, very, very good point. We will be back Wednesday, 11 a.m. Eastern times. So make sure you come and hang with us. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and go and sign up for the CBS Sports Bracket Challenge. Again, cbssports.com slash play. We will have a Cover 3 Bracket Challenge for you to join. Go ahead and get on that. And you can follow him on Twitter at BudElliot3. You can follow him at Tom Fernell. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Shout out to my niece Madeline and the Downers Girl Wolfpack. They're champions. They're ballers.